The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to turn and follow today in the 17th chapter of John. Use your own Bible or the Pew Bible. I really think your attention is more fixed when you're looking at the text that we're talking about. I'm going to read from verse 6 to 12 in John 17, reminding you that we began this long prayer of Jesus, which he prayed before the cross the night before, shortly before his arrest, probably before he spoke those more anguished words, Father, if it be possible, take this cup. That's in other Gospels, and this prayer is only in John. This probably preceded that, and probably about as they arrived at Gethsemane. We assume that because he's arrested in John's telling right after this prayer is given. Listen to this. As he first prayed, we heard last week in 1 through 5, as Jesus prayed that the glory of God would be exhibited in the terrible things that were going to happen to him. And now he prays this, verse 6. Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in truth that I come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. This is God's holy word. This past week, my wife and I had occasion to spend time with a longtime friend and his wife, a ministry friend, a pastor, not in this local area. You need not try to guess who it is. You don't know. I've seen this man serving the Lord in his church from his seminary time in his mid-20s to now his early 50s. But this man is today at a low point spiritually. Even though he's been very useful to the church as a teacher and preacher, he is suffering multiple ways. 
He's suffering because, first of all, a series of difficult setbacks and obstacles in his congregation have been very discouraging over the last year or more. He's been attacked. People have united to persuade others to leave their church. I believe that the attacks are groundless, but they've been terribly discouraging. And then to cap off a most difficult year, this man and his wife were expecting a wonderful joy to come to their lives this fall. The daughter-in-law was to bear their first grandchild. She was days away from delivery. She felt the baby move one morning, went to the doctor's office that day, and the doctor said, I'm very sorry, the heart is not beating. Their first grandson was still born. Take that on top of major blows in your occupational ministry. My friends said to me that He's still, of course, teaching his congregation and preaching, and they're receiving God's Word. He's a faithful pastor. He's doctrinally sound, and he's still doctrinally sound. But he said to me, Michael, I feel like a pastoral robot. It's coming out, but it's all mechanical. It doesn't grip my heart right now. His prayer might well be, Something I read in Job that struck me as similar to his situation. Job chapter 3, verse 23. Job, remember, a righteous man, a godly man, was praying when his terrible misfortunes came and lost his children and his riches and his estate. And Job prayed, why is light, in other words, knowledge of God, why is light given to a man whose pathway is hidden? Why is light given to one whom God has hedged in? The congregation of my friend, I would guess, are are being edified by their shepherd. In fact, some of them probably barely know about what his troubles are, or certainly they don't know about how much it's affecting him. They say, this man's our shepherd. We get strength from the Word of God from him. But right now, the shepherd needs a shepherd. He needs a divine shepherd to protect and heal and sustain him. Well, we come to a turning point here in Jesus' long prayer, and the turning point is early in the prayer. I said to you, the first five verses were Jesus praying that his own glory. Imagine the the horror of the cross. You have to try to think about the awfulness, the terror of the cross when Jesus is praying these first five verses and saying, Father, will you be glorified in what's going to happen? Glorified in that gory, hateful terror strike, as bad as anything in Paris, far worse, in fact, that happened to Jesus. Would you be glorified in that, Father? But now he turns, and he's praying now for disciples. And while this extends all the way down to us, in fact, in verse 20, he's going to even refer to us. You can check verse 20 to see that he's praying for those who will believe one day through the apostle's word. That's us. But first he's praying for the disciples, the 11 who were there with him, praying that God would somehow sustain them because he knew they were going to face terror, grief, weakness, stress, you name it the whole long list at what was about to happen. 
And like my pastor friend, these 11 would be pressed to the limit of a person's powers to endure. Well, when inward fears and outward attacks and obstacles and disappointments and tragedies come to us, we likewise need a resource greater than ourselves, much greater than ourselves, to maintain us, to hold us up through life's rough passages. We, and probably some of you in a particularly acute way this morning, need a supernatural keeper. Our concern in this text of John 17, 6 to 12, is to hear promises from our Savior about the keeping power of God, protecting those who he says will keep faith with God's Word. It's basically the play on those two words, our keeping faith with the Word and God keeping us that form the two points I want to see from this text today. First of all, verses 6 to 10, where Jesus shows us that those who keep His Word from God, because it's true, become special objects of His care. Look what He said. Father, I have manifested Your name. Remember, the name of God means everything about Him, His character, His attributes, what He's like. I have manifested, I have taught your name to the people you gave me out of the world, and they have kept your word. Now, he said, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world at large. I'm praying for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Just briefly, I touch back on what I said last time. Jesus, in, in this prayer, emphasizes so strongly you cannot possibly miss it if you read this prayer, the fact of the Father giving to the Son from all eternity in His mysterious divine counsels, giving the Son the souls whom He would die for and save and bring home to glory. Specific people, a specific group. The Father gave them, the Son acted and faithfully did the things that would be required for these to be saved. Now, we are not even going to try to venture into the questions that that arouses about why and wherefore and why this one and why not that one and what about our will and all of that. Those are ancillary subjects that we could discuss, but it's not the subject here. The point is that Jesus valued these who were given to him because the Father valued them first. These people stand apart from the rest of the world, as he calls it. It's parallel to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, where he there speaks about a differentiation between those who Paul said were, quote, born uh, dead, born dead in trespasses and sins, and they were by nature children of wrath. And Paul says there are a lot of people that were born that way, and they remain that way. They never change. But then he talks about an opposite group who, he says, having been born the same way, were made alive together with Christ, for by grace we have been saved. So the world are those who were born dead and stayed dead. But the disciples, the ones appointed for Christ to enact salvation, are those who have been made 
alive. Two distinct groups within humanity. The spiritually dead who remain that way forever and those given to Christ who come alive for eternity and trust in him and take him as their Lord. Jesus said, he as shepherd and savior prays with watchful care over the group that comes alive, but not the other group. Now, there are millions of people who find this gospel concept to be repugnant. They would say, what, in the, what are you suggesting here? Are you telling me that, that God somehow puts his favor on one group of people and simply leaves the others alone and walks away from them? Well, let me remind you of this, and, and this has happened in one form or another in many different ways, but I can remember a Southern Baptist minister, I'm pretty sure he was, who made national headlines for his 15 minutes of fame some years ago by saying in a public forum, God does not hear the prayer of a Muslim. Oh, my goodness. You would think he set off a hand grenade in the White House. And as you might expect, the man was lambasted in the press What a narrow bigot. But what the man was attempting to say was that the primary prayer God hears from any person, any man or woman, anywhere in the world, regardless of ethnicity or religious background, if we believe our Bible, it is the plea of repentance and faith to trust in God as Savior and Lord through the work of Jesus Christ. That's the prayer God wants to hear. Lord God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Jesus' sake. He will hear that prayer from anyone, regardless of religious identity or national identity. And yet nothing gives greater offense to many people to tell the general public that God somehow ends up with a distinction existing between a group who call on him in that way and those who do not, and that those who do not have a different fate. Oh, my goodness, people will say, what kind of bigotry are you teaching? Well, you know what? I guess it's the bigotry of Jesus. And if Jesus teaches that, I'm proud to stand with him. The Baptist minister who took such abuse was actually correct in that the Scripture nowhere promises that God hears and responds to petitions from worldly unbelievers who are praying to idolatrous versions of God, which are not God, And he is not saying, I will reward them and and hear them and give them all that they want. No, if the Scriptures are read, he says, him who comes to me in Christ, under the blood of Christ, claiming the name of Christ as Lord and Mediator, him I will hear. This is my adopted child. I'm intimate with this one. Promises to him are sealed by grace and by faith that Christ is has guaranteed that in the name of Jesus you may come to me. It's amazing these days, you know, when somebody asks you to ask the minister to pray for a graduation, you have to ask them, do I need your permission to pray in the name of Jesus? As you well know, there are places that say, come and pray, but give us an all-faith prayer, one that doesn't specify that you're a Protestant evangelical. I have twice turned down those opportunities. So I would say, the only way I can pray is in the name of my Lord and Savior. I will do that, so I guess you don't want me. And one person said, you got that right. So, Hebrews 7.25 says about Christ, He is able to save to the uttermost 
those who come to God by him. For he ever lives to make intercession for them. This is the basis on which Jesus was saying, I pray for those you gave me, Father, for they've heard my word. They're ours. But I'm not praying for the world in general. Now you might say, well, how do we know who these people are? Who belongs to the world, as Jesus says here, and who belongs to Christ that he's praying for? Well, there's a couple clear indicators here. Verse 6, Jesus said these people are the ones who have, now here's the exact words in my English translation, kept the Father's Word. That terminology, by the way, occurs 18 times in John's whole gospel. The idea of keeping the Word means believing it, receiving it with faith, clinging to it trusting in it. Look at verse 8. These chosen ones Christ is praying for meet this condition. I have given them your words, Father, and they have received these words and come to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. You know, that's a very elementary version of the gospel. He didn't say they're trusting in my cross and my resurrection. Why didn't he say that? Well, simply because it hadn't happened yet. And although they'd been hinted at, these people couldn't trust in the cross and resurrection. They had less gospel in their head than you and I have. But what they could believe was that he told the truth when he said, I come forth from the Father. And all that I say, the Father says. And the Father is speaking through me. This is what these disciples are credited with believing. And our faith today includes that. We have to believe that that Jesus Christ is truly sent forth from God. He truly speaks for God. But we can add to it the historic events which happened in the next 48 hours after Jesus was speaking here. He died in our place on the cross and shed his blood for the remission of our sin as the perfect Lamb of God. And he rose again by the power of God to bring us alive. We've got more gospel because, of course, those events for us have happened. So do you understand that you too are differentiated by Christ from the unbelieving world? And if I could put it this way, if Jesus, I know this isn't literally so, but if Jesus had a little prayer digest or a little blank book that he wrote down prayer requests, when you put faith in him and call him Lord and trust in his cross and in his resurrection and answer the kind of things that our new members answer today, I receive and rest in him alone, they said. That's it. That's the only solution to life's greatest dilemma. What comes after the grave? Guess what? Jesus enters your name. My friend Jim sitting in the front row. Jim O'Connor is in Jesus' prayer manual. Jesus is praying for him. And he's praying for you, if you know Christ. In a way, he's not praying for the world who do not know him. These are people who have kept the faith. John 10, he says, they are my sheep, those the Father has given me. Hear my voice. They know me and they follow me. They may remain in this world. They may live in this world for many decades after they come to faith but they are not of this world anymore. They're differentiated from it, and I pray for them. All right, that's those who keep the Word of God by faith. But secondly, 
After hearing that, I want you to come to verses 11 and 12 of this text and see the wonderful promise then spoken by Jesus that says, believers are infallibly kept by God's own powerful care over them. You see, this prayer intervention of Jesus is like a strong cable binding us to him and to our eternal life that is our gift from our Savior. You drive over a suspension bridge in many parts of this country. I've never been on the San Francisco Bay Bridge, but in my opinion, it's the most beautiful bridge in America. I don't think it would let me down if I one day actually saw it with my eyes from the pictures. You drive across that huge, long bridge, and and there are probably hundreds of cars on it at the same time you're on it, and the bridge itself weighs, who has any idea how many thousands of tons it weighs? And somehow all that apparatus and all those cars are held up above the water by steel cables, bundles of steel cables. I don't think too many, there may be people with a paranoia about bridges, but I don't think most of the public ventures out and drives across the San Francisco Bay Bridge and says, oh, I wonder if this will be the day. It's going down. I'm sure it's going down. You don't think about it. You're gazing at the beauty of what you're seeing, and you're trusting without even thinking, like you sat down in the pew or in a chair today. You didn't test it out to see if it would hold you. You drive across that bridge, and you know those cables are holding you up. Well, the Christian is promised to be infallibly kept in God's wonderful care. Now, understand me, because there are people who do not understand this. They think that means, well, do you mean to tell me that we can't die? We can't get injured? We're thankful for our soldier who came home from Iraq uninjured because others were injured. Others who were injured were Christians for whom people prayed. So is this saying, you, you won't get injured, you won't be in a car accident, you won't lose, lose your physical life to cancer, you won't be martyred by this guy who I guess is supposedly dead now, who's cutting heads off left and right? No, it doesn't promise that. What it promises is that the ultimate spiritual result that God has in view, your soul, being given everlasting life, cannot be cut off. Jesus was promising what he said earlier in John 10, 28 and following. I give my sheep, what, safety for 75 or 90 years that they never have a serious injury? No. I give my sheep eternal life. And when he says they will never perish, he's talking about eternal perishing, not body perishing. And he says, no man is able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them from my Father's hand. My Father's hand, my hand, nobody can snatch them. They're mine. And I will keep them with steel cables of faithfulness and grace as I work in those lives. I can't lose them eternally. Now, you might challenge me and say, well, what about that minister friend of yours that you started talking about? He's terribly discouraged. People have lied about him. They've created schism in his congregation. He just lost a first grandchild. His son is devastated. His daughter-in-law is devastated. He feels like his whole ministry is in a kind of stalemate. Is God keeping them? Let there 
be no doubt about it. God is keeping my dear friends right now through an especially dark time in their lives. God is keeping them the way he kept Job amid that godly man's wails of pain that went on we don't even know how long, weeks, months, I'm not sure how long. Even his friends came and said, okay, Job, admit what you did wrong because God has to be punishing you. You must have done something wrong. And Job had to go back and forth with disputations that got him all turned around. And God was keeping him the whole time. God is keeping my friends the way he kept the remnant of faithful people in Israel when they were captive in Egypt for 400 years. And then when later their descendants were captive again in Babylon, and out of those captivities came a remnant of true faith, God kept his people. And I love the example set by one who's close to this story that we're reading and we'll hear from in just a short time as we proceed in John, Simon Peter. God was keeping Simon Peter this night. Luke is the one that gives the little dialogue that precedes the arrest. You know, Peter's the brave one who pulled out his sword and started whacking away and took off a soldier's ear and so on, thinking that was the way to do things. Jesus reproved him, put the sword away. That's not called for here. And then what did Peter go to do? He stood at his enemy's campfire and a servant girl, some, you know, it would have been one thing it had been a big blustery Roman soldier. Were you with Jesus? It was a servant girl. You are with him. You're one of them. No, no, no. Not me. And then the rooster crowed and Peter went out and cried bitter tears. I love what Luke says. Jesus said it, but Luke recorded it. Jesus predicted that Peter would do that. Peter, you're going to betray me three times. Not me, Lord, not me. I'll never do that. I'll die for you. Peter, you will. But know this. I have prayed for you. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. I love that. Do you know how and what kept Peter? The prayer of Jesus. I think he might have, well, very well committed suicide as he went out. And no, he had been a coward and betrayed the Savior. But he remembered that Jesus said, I have prayed for you and you are going to turn back. Let me point you to this in another New Testament gospel. I'd be glad if you'd you'd actually open your Bible to Mark chapter 6 and make note of this. I think I would call this a paradigm or a pattern of how God's keeping care often works. Not every time, but often. Mark 6 tells of a passage. It's right after the feeding of the 5,000. I'm going to summarize rather than read it all. But at Mark 6.45 tells of the incident when the 5,000 had been fed. The disciples didn't understand that very well. They didn't figure out what was going on. There was a lot of discussion among them. Mark's words are, are God's words, and they're very deliberate. And it says, Jesus made, it's forceful, he made his disciples get in a boat and cross the lake while he went up in the mountain alone to pray. He forced them to do this. You go, I'm staying. You know what happened? A big storm came up. 
which threatened even the seasoned fishermen. They didn't know how to handle this thing. Verse 48 says, Jesus, from afar, somewhere on the lake shore, saw the difficulty. Did that difficulty surprise him? After all, he made them go. Was he surprised that this storm came up? Absolutely not. Nothing happens in a disciple's life that escapes his notice or surprises him. Then the miracle, he came to them walking on the sea. They thought he was a ghost. They cried out in fear. He said, take heart, it is I, got in the boat, the storm ceased, and it says the disciples were astounded. Now I want you to see, this is a pattern for God's keeping care. Jesus often sends his own disciples into situations where he knows perfectly well we will meet opposition and great distress, and we will be dismayed, discouraged, disappointed, and depressed. All those Ds. He knows that. And then he prays for us. And here is this event that tells us it was the Savior's keeping care, unrelenting on behalf of his disciples that protected them through the storm. He would not let them go. He came to them. And finally, I think long after the fact, they figured it out. He sent us into that danger. He knew what we would face. He intended to keep us and protect us. And he did. And even if we had died, his purposes would have been accomplished. We call this doctrine in Christian theology the perseverance of the saints. It's the doctrine that says God's own people who are known by him and brought alive by faith in Jesus Christ must persevere in their faith. They will keep their faith unto the very end because it is God in them persevering and holding on and pursuing them, keeping them. Now, last thing here, notice the oddity that I ended at verse 12, but that's a division that I'll justify next week, Lord willing. It doesn't seem like a stopping place, but the last thing Jesus said there was, Father, I have guarded my own. Not one has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. We know he was talking about Judas. And you could interpret, if you wanted to, casually say, oh, okay. Jesus is saying, Father, I've kept my own. Oh, wait a minute. There was one exception. Well, you know, in baseball, you're doing pretty good if you bat 350. Father, I'm batting over 900. I only left one behind. Is that good? That is not, of course, what Jesus is saying. Because the one he named and alluded to here was one who never was one of Christ's own. He didn't belong to Christ. He didn't keep his word, believing that Jesus came forth from the Father. He didn't have a new birth of faith. He was a charlatan. He was a heretic. So the loss of Judas was only an apparent loss, not a real loss. Jesus kept infallibly every one of those given by the Father to him. I give you the assignment today, if I'm speaking to you in some way and you say, you know, that guy you've told about, that minister friend, sounds a little bit like me. My circumstances are different, of course. With me, it's cancer. With me, it's broken relationship with my daughter. With me, it's fill in the blank. I give you an assignment. 
a verse that you may well know if you've been a Christian very long, Philippians 1.6. I give you this verse as a mantra that you might need to say to yourself many times in a day. Repeat it numerous times until it sinks in. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. You can say that before breakfast. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Say it after lunch. Say it in the evening. Say it before your eyes close at night. And tell yourself what you need to hear, that God finishes what he begins. The workshop of God, the workshop of salvation, is not littered with a lot of half-finished projects. You know, I love the program American Pickers. Any of you watch that? They, They go and try to buy motorcycles or whatever, and they go to these places where some guy has a hundred junk motorcycles on his back lot, and it looks just like a junkyard. And he's, he's intending that every one of those motorcycles that he's going to fix up and, and bring it to perfection and sell it. And he's just beginning to dawn on him that it's not going to happen. His unfinished projects are legion. Well, God doesn't have a back lot like that with souls of believers that he started to save, but uh, kind of had to turn that guy down because he was too difficult. God's firm determination was stated long ago by the 121st Psalm that we used as a call to worship. Listen to it. If you don't think Old Testament and New Testament join together, the Lord is your keeper, believer. He is the shade on your right hand. The Lord will keep you from evil. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Only a supernatural keeper can guard the people of God through this dangerous world today where we don't even know if we could go to a movie without some fool at the back with an AK-47 deciding it's time to mow us down. Should we run into a cave and lock ourselves in a closet and stop living? Or should we live and say, I have a Savior who prayed to his Father. Father, keep them in your name, and he will do it. Take that as a guarantee. Our Father, I pray for those today who might be in some great anxiety, some difficulty of a disease prognosis, some shattering thing in their home, some economic crisis, maybe a piled-up series of things like my friend, such that they're just going through the motions of living, thinking you don't care and you're not involved. Remind them of Jesus praying for his friends in the storm and assure them that you will keep them unto eternity. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.